0: Well, I'm going to start off today with a not terribly insightful point, admittedly, which is simply that the world's complicated. Knowing what to do in many of the situations we face day to day, it's complicated. Figuring out what the right thing to do as a follower of Jesus is complicated. Meredith quoted a college professor of hers a few weeks back to the effect that you can't buy a righteous pair of tennis shoes. Well, it may seem... Like the world's getting more and more complicated as time goes on, it's also true that people have found life to be challenging for as long as people have been scuffling around on the face of the earth. And just as long as people have found life to be challenging, they've been telling stories as a way to make sense of it all. Grand earth-shaking stories, small personal stories, stories of heroes and villains and tricksters and sometimes characters who are all three at once. I wanted to start here because it sets the stage for so much of Exodus. Exodus is a story. It is literature. And when we read it correctly, not just as history, a record of what happened when and who said what and in what order, but as literature, complete with the literary features we would expect from any story. In other words, when we read it how it was intended to be read all along, I think it comes more richly alive for us. Now, I do want to be clear that when we call Exodus literature, we are not saying it is fiction, that the main events didn't actually happen, it's all made up. We're saying that the events are narrated in a literary way. They are presented as a story. And like any good story, true or not, they're going to be compelling characters, figurative language, elements that contrast with each other and highlight each other in the process, surprising events, foreshadowing, conflict, and on and on. And yes, this means that some of the elements might not have, strictly speaking, happened in exactly the way they're written. But this makes the story more true not less true, because that's how stories work. You have surely told a story at some point, lots of them, really, where both to make the story more interesting and to get your point across, you paraphrase a conversation instead of quoting it word for word, or you exaggerate the details, or you combine a couple characters into one composite character to simplify things and help with understanding, or you use any number of other literary techniques that communicate the meaning of the story better. And no one would then accuse you of lying or making stuff up because they would understand what you were doing, that that's how stories work. Exodus is the story of Yahweh God setting the people of Israel free from slavery so that they could be Yahweh's special people for the sake of the world. And reading it as a story is going to highlight for us many of the important things the storyteller wants us to know about who this God is and what they're up to in the world. True things. So we're going to spend one more week here on chapter one of Exodus with a special eye on some of the literary characteristics that enrich the story and our understanding of it. So first, let's hear the story. This is chapter one of Exodus, and I'd like you to listen to it as a story, not a collection of Bible verses as much as you can. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of people born to Jacob was seventy. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, The Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase and, in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites." The Egyptians subjected the Israelites to hard servitude and made their lives bitter with hard servitude in mortar and bricks and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, When you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, there are any number of literary features that we could spend hours and hours on, but we're going to focus on something that's at the heart of this story. It's a story of contrasts, of juxtaposition. With Pharaoh as the key opposition figure, the all-powerful king opposing the marginalized Hebrews, the king who is being opposed by the two humble midwives and who ultimately fails in his schemes. And the writer plays up these contrasts, presenting Pharaoh as an exaggerated villain of a character who talks a big game, but ultimately fails. Pharaoh is, for the purposes of this story, not so much a real historical figure he may be that but that isn't what is important for the story for the story what's important is that pharaoh is the nameless faithless embodiment of empire of the world of sin the seemingly powerful wise and omnipresent forces in our world that oppose the truly powerful truly wise truly present force that is our god this is a story of good and evil which highlights for us the flavor of evil what it is how it operates by both blowing its misdeeds up beyond all reason and showing how they come to nothing in the face of the goodness of God. So let's take a look at a couple of these contrasts. First, Pharaoh acts in opposition to creation. I talked a couple weeks ago about how the writer intentionally echoes the words of Genesis one in describing the growth of the Israelites, that they were fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth. Even if God isn't specifically named in this particular part of the story, the literary reference is clear. God is doing creation again. This is not a story of meaningless biological processes, of people making lots of babies. This is God's creative work, active and thriving. And how does Pharaoh respond? With violence and oppression and death. Pharaoh is anti-creation trying to destroy the creative work of God, trying to control and confine the life that God is making thrive because it frightens him and threatens him. The writer is telling us that where creation is happening, where life and abundance and color and energy and flourishing exist, there our God is in the midst of it, even in the midst of slavery and oppression. And that the forces of sin will set themselves in opposition to that creation. That where anti-creation is happening, There, the forces of darkness are at work. It's a clue for us to look for in this complicated world of where God is at work and where the forces that actually oppose God, however they might try to present themselves, where they are at work instead. Second, Pharaoh brings oppression in opposition to life. Now, this flows right out of the first contrast. Where life is flourishing, Pharaoh tries to break it with oppression. It's almost comical how repetitive the storyteller is in emphasizing what Pharaoh does. Verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed. Verse 13, the Egyptians subjected the Israelites to hard servitude and made their lives bitter with hard servitude in mortar and bricks and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed upon them. It's this drumbeat of the same words over and over mirroring the drudgery and toil that the israelites are forced into by their oppressors the writer wants us to feel the horror see the excessive desperate nature of it they want to play up the greatness of the challenge to life that pharaoh is bringing so that they can play up the contrast and say and yet despite all of this life keeps escaping even in the midst of injustice and oppression to the extreme The writer tells us that the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more Pharaoh tries to contain the creative life that God is causing to thrive, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread. Even when Pharaoh escalates further from the metaphorical death of slavery to the literal killing of babies, he still is foiled at every turn. This is a story meant to show us in no uncertain terms that no matter the extent of the oppressive forces of the Pharaohs of this world, no matter the bitterness and the toil, that life is bubbling under the surface and will continue to burst forth because God's creative, life-giving power is no match for the opposition that evil tries to put up. Third, Pharaoh's foolishness, born out of fear, is contrasted with the midwife's wisdom born out of trust. Pharaoh, despite his power, is clearly afraid of the Israelites. Maybe at first, he simply sees an opportunity to get some free slave labor and plays up imagined fears to accomplish his own goals. I mean, gosh, how could we ever find a parallel in the contemporary world of someone stoking imagined fears of the foreigner in order to consolidate power for themselves? Too bad these old stories don't have any relevance for our world today. But by the end of the story, Pharaoh is not just wanting slave labor. He is afraid of the ethnic and cultural identity of the Israelites themselves. He tries to stamp them down, but they thrive all the more. And at some point, Pharaoh's heart starts to tremble. These are a people he cannot control who are sustained and animated by a power he can't compete with. He needs to remove this threat. And this is of course, how empire always reacts to what it can't control. And so he comes up with this plan to kill the boys so that the girls can be married off to other slaves, dispersing the ethnic identity and effectively ending it. This is a cultural genocide that Pharaoh is aiming at. And it seems like a wise move, just like enslaving the Israelites seemed wise at the time. The author highlights Pharaoh's intentions, come, let us deal shrewdly or wisely with these Israelites. But in both cases, the move backfires. It's shown to be not wise. And in fact, the second part of the story Two simple, everyday midwives are able to completely do one over on the king of Egypt. The social position could not be more different, but the king who proclaims himself wise is undone by the midwives of the slave people. Pharaoh is shown to be, in reality, a fool, not wise. Now this is funny, of course. The evil king being played for a fool, it's great theater. But, like any great theater, the point isn't just the laughs. Proverbs 1.7 tells us that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that God thwarts the wisdom of the world with what seems to the world to be foolishness in the cross. When we see the literature of Exodus 1, we see the abiding truth that when we are motivated by fear, our perspective is distorted. More guns will keep us safe, with the result being only more death. Enslaving the Israelites will break them. But again, verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, their fear growing. In contrast, the midwives are said to fear God, which is a very different sort of fear. They trust God, we might say. And so despite their social standing, they are the ones who are truly wise, outsmarting the king of the land, making Pharaoh to be a fool. And this brings us to, fourth, the banality of of pharaoh's evil is contrasted with the creativity of the midwives pharaoh's brilliant strategy is about as boring as they come oh how original you're going to oppress a marginalized people group <laughs> you're going to make a big deal about how subhuman these dirty foreigners are in order to gin up nationalistic sentiment so as to consolidate your own power wow no dictators ever thought of that one before The philosopher Hannah Arendt coined the phrase, the banality of evil, to highlight exactly this truth that shows up in the story, that evil is so boring, running back the same plays over and over and over again. But the midwives, they show real creativity, coming up with a strategy to use Pharaoh's own prejudice against him in order to preserve life. Oh, you know, these Hebrew women, practically animals, just dropping babies before we can even get there. Time and time again, those who fear God find themselves in opposition to an empire that wants to crush them. And those who are in opposition to the empire can't just keep running the same place. They have to be light enough on their toes to constantly come up with more creative and novel ways to escape. Good thing we have the unending creative force of our God on our side. And finally, the self-interest of Pharaoh is contrasted with the willing sacrifice of the midwives. When you stop to think about it, the motivations behind Pharaoh's evil are really boring too. Wait, you're enslaving a whole people and engaging in mass murder of babies because you want to be able to build cheaper storehouses? If only the motivations for evil in our own world today weren't just as dumb. There is no greater purpose here, no higher motivation, just dumb self-interest and desire for power. But the fear of Yahweh leads the midwives into the highly creative highly dangerous path of resistance. They willingly put their own lives on the line. I mean, can, can you imagine what would have happened to them if Pharaoh wasn't the dumbest character in this story, fooled by their clever lie? And their self-sacrifice is what allows life to keep flourishing. The literary contrast here also highlights a theological truth for us. Self-interest seems to be the way to get the life we want. But time and again in scripture, we are told, sometimes explicitly, but often like here in story form, that true life is found through self-sacrifice, that the paradox is that when we take up our cross and lay down our own self-interest and follow that path, we find that it leads to life, life for us and life for the world. In this story, the midwife's sacrifice for the sake of the life of the baby boy's and by extension, the continued existence of their people as a people. And then we are told, God gives them families, which was at that time considered to be the highest blessing God could give to a woman. Now, we might prefer different, less patriarchal measures of blessing today, but that doesn't change the meaning of that little note in the story for its historical context. Trusting God leads to life for us and for the world. So let me sum up by repeating. Pharaoh acts in opposition to creation, but God is still a God of creation and abundance. Pharaoh brings oppression in opposition to life, but our God still sets the oppressed free so that they can experience the life that God offers. Pharaoh's foolishness, born out of fear, is contrasted with the midwife's wisdom born out of trust, and our God is still the source of wisdom in the big and the small. The banality of Pharaoh's evil is contrasted with the creativity of the midwives. Our God is still the one who inspires creativity that overflows. The self-interest of Pharaoh is contrasted with the willing sacrifice of the midwives. And our God is still the one who brings life to the world through sacrifice.